Hey, everybody. It's Michelle, and I am completely cup runneth over with joy because today I get to announce that Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders is 100% done and in publication, and you can check out your copy on Amazon. And the best part, if that book moves you, if it grows your evidence-based triangle to to engage in interprofessional practice, to do the root cause analysis to why the child is presenting with the PFD, to then engage with the team to get that child to a point of healing so that the real growth can begin, then y'all check out speechtherapypd.com because they are gracious enough to entertain all of these amazing, joyful ideas. And they're currently carrying the book for 13.5 ASHA CEUs. So (sighs) thank you for being a part of the first bite journey that led to chasing the swallow. And be sure to check out speechtherapypd.com for the 13.5 ASHA CEUs that accompany it. Happy learning. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and a guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy joy and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Folks, thank you so much for joining us tonight. As always, yeah, we are live for the good, the bad, the ugly in our tiny end of the world. Let's see. There has a double ear infection, a bloody ear, and mommy had to have surprise foot surgery yesterday to have a piece of broken glass lobbed out of it um, because of the construction from Doom. So we've got that going for us. How how was your day? It was fine. I had not too many patients, so that was good. Yeah. Okay. Y'all, we are one month and one day into the new PFD codes. So we thought it would be a good time to circle back around Hi, Cola, and talk about the ethics behind the new PFD codes and work through realistic implications and to provide some of our favorite resources for it. First and foremost, again, we are here today because of Feeding Matters and all of the work that that nonprofit has done to secure the PFD codes. So if you are not familiar with Feeding Matters, please go check out their website. If you have the time, energy, and talents to 
tithe with, then please consider volunteering your time with that organization. Also, this Friday is our annual fundraiser for Feeding Matters. So I will be there volunteering my time, chairing a table. So please consider a donation or pop by the virtual table there. And let's kick off with today's official episode of Ethics for PFD Evaluations Through Treatment. This course is offered for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. If you're a part of the ASHA registry and want your CEUs reported, you must have your ASHA number and address in your speechtherapypd.com profile. Otherwise, it won't be reported. To view your certificate of completion, you must go back into your speechtherapypd.com account and complete the course content, including the module quiz by the end of today. Just a reminder that if you're part of the ASHA registry, your ASHA CEUs will be reflected in about six to eight weeks from the day of completion. And that airing, let's roll. Talk to us about PFD, baby. Can you define it? <laughs> Oh gosh, where do we want to start? They say it's impaired oral intake that is not age appropriate and is associated with medical, nutritional, feeding skill, and or psychosocial dysfunction. So the most important thing that I like to stress is it can be in one or all of those factors, those four they talk about, medical, nutrition, feeding skill or psychosocial. And so most of our kids, most of the kids that you and I see are in all four, but I like breaking it down in that way. And I've actually started breaking my evaluations down in that way, which I discussed with our friend, Kristen West, who has like started to do that as well, because it allows you to dive further in into the why I think the fact that psychosocial is part of those also puts the value in how much that can impact a child and how much family and all of those other factors also plays a role. Because I think it sometimes that just gets coupled in like with behavioral or this is just a behavior. Or this is just like a side note of the PFD when in reality, that's like a huge component. Yeah. To me, one of the benefits of clearly when you give the diagnosis of pediatric feeding disorder and you break it down into those four domains, it allows you the tools in your report and in your plan of care. And folks, I would heed the advice that Aaron's giving when you break it down, having it clearly outlined as to how it correlates over to the interprofessional practice partner, especially mm -hmm. when you want to go to make the referral to the interprofessional practice partner. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So if you're trying to say, okay, well, you know, we have a medical deficit here or there's signs and symptoms of this medical component, such as delayed gastric emptying, signs and symptoms of an aerodigestive tract disorder, but also we're seeing a psychosocial component of the child struggling to eat with a non-primary caregiver, like a, a new daycare worker, because they don't know that child's um, social emotional cues and are getting labeled as behavioral picky figgy eater, right? So line item it out to this is the person that we need to refer to here and why, and that will help. And again, that ties back into the code of ethics specifically because today is all about the ethics yeah. behind PFD. But when you go to make a referral, principle of ethics one, rule of ethics B, individuals shall use every resource, including referral and or interprofessional collaboration when appropriate to ensure that quality service is provided. And again, we can't, as the SLP, make the referral. We can make the documentation, the notes, and the requests to the physician so that they can make the referral. What are our, our new codes? Can you talk about the two new specific ICD-10 codes? We used to have R63.3, which was used a lot, which was feeding difficulties. So that can reasonably insurance. I mean, it just it was hard sometimes because like that's all that we had unless they had a diagnosed dysphagia, which is only in the feeding skill. So like we only had these diagnostic codes that we could comment on if they had an issue with feeding skill with a dysphagia, oral, pharyngeal, but we didn't have something that was more encompassing of all the other components of a PFD. And so having both acute and chronic pediatric feeding disorder, I think that that's really important because there are a lot of people that do have a pediatric feeding disorder 
more so in adults, but also in pediatrics because of something underlying or they're going through a surgery or they had some sort of change in status that may resolve soon. It's very important to clarify that, mm-hmm. but it also validates it by having the word disorder too. I mean, mm-hmm. this isn't just that these kids just, it's hard for them. It's not that they just like don't want to do the work. Like difficulties is, I think can be misconstrued. Like this is an actual disorder because of some of these underlying etiologies, medical nutrition, it validates what these kids are going through also. Like it's just, and it's, I don't know how they decide on like what number or like. AMA, American Medical Association gives out the specific ICD numbers, but the defining line is six months. So what is it? R63.1 is chronic and R63.1 is acute, I think. Yep. R63.31 is acute. So acute is less than six months. And R63.232 is chronic. So something that's been going on longer than three months. Now, I said three months or six months because you said both. Six months to my knowledge. Correct me if I'm wrong. Now, the catch with this code is what I've seen is that some people are troubleshooting whether or not we also need to use the R1312 diagnosis if they also have a concurrent diagnosis of oropharyngeal dysphagia, such as something that's been documented on an instrumental swallow exam. And yes, it is appropriate to use the PFD code and the dysphagia code if the child truly has both diagnoses. The trick is code backwards. Say you have a child who comes to you at seven months of age in your outpatient clinic and has a diagnosis of perinatal CVA and neonatal abstinence syndrome, maybe they're with their newly adopted parent. I wouldn't make my primary code the neonatal abstinence syndrome. It's three months. It's three months. Okay. I'm sorry. I said six months. Um, So R63.31 acute less than three months, R63.31 three, two chronic greater than three months. Okay. So for this particular child, I'm not going to code neonatal abstinence syndrome and or the stroke as my primary etiology. I'm going to code what it is that I'm functionally treating, whether that be the PFD code for chronic R63.32 first, and then the oropharyngeal code R1312, and then drop the primary etiology. That's last. You're coding backwards. You're coding what you're treating. The NICU treated the neonatal abstinence syndrome. The NICU team treated the IVH. We did not. If you code those wrong, insurance can come back and ask to recoup their expenses. Also, if you code your ICD-10 codes wrong and or your CPT codes, which we'll get to in two seconds, that's also a potential code of ethics violation. So if we look at principle of ethics ones, rule of ethics Q, individuals shall maintain timely records and accurately record and bill for services provided and products dispensed and shall not misrepresent services provided, products dispensed or research and scholarly activities conducted. So that's a biggie. If you drop the wrong ICD-10 code purposefully, or erroneously, that could be fraud. What about CPT codes, Erin? It depends on what state you're in because you have access to different codes. But if you're treating a PFD, when you're treating the PFD, you should code 92526. I have a lot of kids where I am treating both language and feeding. A lot of times I'll treat language within the session with feeding, but I try to make sure I'm billing for what I'm doing. So it's hard if you're doing both at the same time, but I think about what I'm focusing on and you just have to be as ethical as you can about it. Like in most of my feeding sessions, I'm doing language at the exact same time, but I'm not going to bill for an hour of feeding and an hour of language. That's just not appropriate. So if it truly is both feeding and language, the entire session, I'm going to do half and half in our state. The feeding code is untimed and the speech and language code is timed. 
So when I bill for that, if I was truly doing half and half, it would be one unit of the feeding code 92526, which is untimed, and then 30 minutes of the language code, which is timed. So that would be two units. It gets very confusing and our state is different. But to Michelle's point, like you have to be coding for what you are doing. And that's for a patient safety, because how is insurance supposed to be covering for something that you're not doing? And to that same point, how are we supposed to get access to codes that we don't have access to? Or how is insurance supposed to like see the value in this code if no one's using it? Mm-hmm. That's not going to help at all. So this is the ASHA super bill, treatment of swallowing dysfunction and oral function for feeding, 92526, right under swallowing function. Do you see that it yeah. says oral function? Do you see that it does that like... You can't bill 92507 for oral motor just because they can, they also use their mouth to speak. Just, yes. just clarifying that. Now that this has come up numerous times previously and right here, 92507 treatment of speech language, voice communication and or auditory pressing disorder for the individual. This code right here is clearly nothing to do with a bolus. I've used ASHA Superbill to communicate with management or people I'm working with to mm-hmm. explain like why I'm billing what I'm billing or to mm-hmm. explain like what codes we should have access to. Mm-hmm. To use that as a frame of reference can be really helpful if you're being like questioned on something like that. So ASHA Superbill is super easy to find because it's what you would use if you were like billing a patient without insurance. Like that's how, what you so- would do. What I have found is that, for instance, I have this one little guy and we are four to six weeks into therapy. He came to me with a PFD concern after changing to a new pediatrician. Oh my God, he's so cute. He always wears a hat when he comes to therapy. And he's very serious about this hat of his. As of yet, he does not have a diagnosis of ASD. We are in the process of meeting with developmental pediatrician and psychiatry and all of the correct interprofessional practice partners to get that diagnosis, it is coming. So we have echolalia, limited functional speech, one word wrote phrases every once in a while with echolalia, he would do two words. And I was not the primary SLP for language. A different clinician was doing language and I was just doing PFD. However, I had difficulty in my sessions Describing the food that we liked, our feelings, our emotions, and naturally I'm going to do recasting. I'm naturally going to do sentence elongation because that's what it is that I am also a speech language pathologist, right? But until I had a prescription for speech therapy, eval and treat language concerns or whatever the physician, actually the first time the doctor wrote the script, he said, because parents said we need a new referral. And I was like, yeah. Can't do anything with that new prescription. So, like, let's try that again. So, once I got the script for speech therapy, and we did the formal evaluation and the routines based interview, and then moved into functional therapy, my sessions were just as you described 92507 for two units for 30 minutes, 92526 for one unit for 30 minutes. And oh, by the way, we've added in an AAC device. Shout out to Talk To Me Technologies and why Franken coming in strong. He's super fly because we're winding down the semester. Expedited, we go 10 out to us. And within one session of using LAMP on we go 10. Y'all, that sweet baby said, I love you to his mom and independently, volitionally made eye contact and said, I want eat. Then licked kiss spaghetti or the, the pizza sauce, the marinara sauce, the red sauce. Mm-hmm. And for this child, now I'm utilizing the CPT code for speech generating device as well as language. So I'm doing one unit of the speech generating device, one unit of language, and then one unit for feeding. So we're all staying within that hour of therapy time, but it's split. And here's the follow-up to that. My note must reflect that every single CPT code I dropped was accurately and efficiently addressed. Otherwise, if insurance reads my note and I do not capture, if my goals don't support the utilization of those CPT codes, 
and they're corresponding to the ICD-10 diagnostic codes. And my note does not support that I actually actually did the thing that I said that I did. Insurance can come back, ask for all their money back and sue me for fraud. Speech is different in that our CPT codes have to clearly match our ICD-10 codes. OT and PT don't necessarily have that. OT has a like therapeutic activities. Very broad, very general. So it's very broad. And the Mm -hmm. issue that I've run into with occupational therapy, at least in our state, is that um, because it's so broad, they can work on a lot of different things. That includes feeding. Mm -hmm. So you have to make sure that you're not duplicating services. Yes, OT and speech can work on feeding in different ways. But those are conversations that you have to have from an ethics standpoint because insurance might... This is the thing you have to realize about insurance is I've had people say to me, well, insurance hasn't said anything or insurance approved it. They don't always know. It's not a speech therapist that are reading Mm -hmm. those notes. So like a lot of times things get missed and then down the road, someone might catch something and it's been a whole year of this getting missed. And so, especially with feeding, like for a while, you know, the insurance might not notice. Then all of a sudden they get all these notes in from OT and speech that are working on the same goals with feeding. And they're like, what are you doing? And sometimes speech gets kicked to the side. Sometimes OT gets kicked to the side. It depends, but you have to get ahead of that by having those conversations. And it's really beneficial for both of you to be work. Like if the child needs to work on self-feeding and there's a lot of other aspects with positioning or things like that. That's really valid, but like you need to be having that conversation. Sometimes they don't answer you. I've called about four OTs, left them all text messages and called them again and haven't heard back from any of them in a couple of weeks. Just don't take offense if they don't respond. I'm not saying OT. I'm just saying like in general, sometimes collaborating is harder than I'm not lump. I love OTs. I'm just saying. It's collaboration. Sometimes you don't get a phone call back, but... Yes, because um, we're all drowning with... We're um, all drowning. Yeah. Working mom problems. Here's where wearing my supervisor and mentor hat, and you do this because you're lead feeding therapist. So if you're in a position of authority or leadership, then... You need to make sure that once you have this new information, that you're turning to those who may be new to PFD. Maybe they have practiced an extensive period of time, but they maybe they didn't keep up with CEUs for evolution in smart goal writing or what insurances are specifically look for. But if you're in that position, then reach out to your team and have a team meeting and say, this is the information we need to make sure that our ICD-10 codes are coding backwards, that they perfectly align with the correct CPT codes that we're using. And you need to make sure that your prescriptions for therapy also say, if you're doing speech therapy, eval and treat, it needs to be specific script needs to cover feeding, swallowing, oral intake difficulties. Because if your script says, speech therapy, eval and treat, and you're doing multiple different factors. Well, I don't want to say CYA, but CYA and make sure that they align. Okay. To flip this, if you're a student or if you're a clinical fellow and your supervisor is signing off on your notes, because again, feeding cannot be done by a speech language pathology assistant. Anything that includes a bolus is outside of the scope of practice of a speech-language pathology assistant. I can't believe we didn't go there earlier. It clearly outlines this is not within their scope. So if you are a student clinician and the clinical educator or supervisor is signing off on your notes and or you are a clinical fellow and your um, fully seed individual is signing off on your notes and they ask you to code incorrectly to maximize reimbursement, that's a code of ethics violation. And you're liable. If you're a student clinician and you're a member of NISHLA, you are also bound to your student code of conduct, which is essentially your code of ethics. And if you're a member of NISHLA or if you're a member of your state association, that's also a potential code of ethics violation. And if you're a CF, then you're in the application process. And yes, CFs can be found guilty of Medicaid insurance fraud. So once you know 
you have to advocate and educate. So top down, bottom up, we have to do better here for our big soapbox. Don't let her freak you out though. It's good. It, you can get scary sometimes. <laughs> I don't mean to. It's the eyebrows. All that Botox on my forehead, it really shouldn't move this much, but it does. Just like don't be afraid to say, you know, to say something or to question something. I've had to have conversations about like billing and things like that. And for most of the time, people don't know better. And then when they know better, they do better. And if you're at a place yep. where they're not willing to do better, you probably shouldn't stay there. Yeah. And this is how I open my private practice. Huzzah. Yeah. The American Association of Private Practice Speech Language Pathologists and Audiologists. They have fantastic tools for if you're contemplating, if you're in that position where you know you want to be in private practice, but these people keep asking you to do the wrong thing and you're like, that's not me, I need to do better. Or they're like productivity and you can't because you have medically complex kids and they have hospital stays and surgeries and rah, 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 rah. And you're ready to step out on faith. One, know that it takes forever in a day to get credentialed. So good luck, friend. Two, watch out for clearing houses and contracting companies. And three, become a member of that organization because they offer you free legal advice like twice a year or they used to. And fantastic. fantastic. Oh, they have a really great two-day conference and it's normally in Orlando in April, if memory serves correct. So um, another really good resource. So I don't mean to get scary. So let's work through some common HIPAA violations. So when you get on Feeding Matters website, they have set up the PFD ICD-10 toolkit. This is a great interprofessional practice partner resource to help folks work through all of it, how to diagnose, how to educate physicians, because again, folks, physicians are just learning about this as well. And if you're engaging with a PCP who's not familiar that they need to write pediatric feeding disorder, chronic or pediatric feeding disorder acute on the script when they send it over, this is material that you can download for free, print out and fax over with a copy of your report. I highly recommend doing that. And this just kind of works through everything. I love the PFD fact sheet. This questionnaire right here, the RAC card, if you're engaged in a child find, thanks to Emily Homer and the foundational work she's done with bringing PFD into the public schools and then the, the growth, because I know we just adopted it here in South Carolina, you can include the ICFQ screener as part of your child find and help flag these students when they come in. But everything's right here. It's already been done. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. And then I feel like we should just call Kristen West and tell her we're going to talk about PFD and ARFID. Erin, do you want to do it justice and describe the differences between the two? (laughs) I don't know if I can. I mean, I'm glad that Feeding Matters put this out because... I think there is a lot of confusion on ARFID, but it has to be diagnosed by a psychologist, psychiatrist. Basically, ARFID is a diagnosis when you're saying there's no other underlying comorbidities or etiologies other than psychiatric. So like, Mm -hmm. I mean, you're seeing the nutrition because of the feeding, but like medical and feeding skill, like that is not an issue. And also if they did have an underlying etiology or had a feeding skill issue, that's not ARFID. Yeah. How this breaks down when feeding pediatric feeding disorders, not in the PFD term, but step back 15, 20 years ago when dysphagia was established, but pediatric dysphagia was not very well understood into that. I'm going to punt Dr. Memory Gosa, who's the chair of the University of Alabama, as well as the chair of the inaugural Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Track Committee, Planning Committee for ASHA 2021 Convention, as well as the topic committee chair for the 2022 ASHA Convention. We have a webinar coming out on Wednesday, November 17th, and the podcast will drop either the 17th or the 18th. But she actually walks everyone through the history of PFD and how it went from 
being lumped in under adult dysphagia to like subsequently peds dysphagia to then now we're here. But if we take it back to when peds was like primordial soup stage, SLPs were unknowingly diagnosing ARFID. I have, I'll admit, erroneously diagnosed a kid with ARFID when I first started, but I thought that's what I was supposed to do because the child had such adverse behaviors around a mealtime. Luckily, it was with a pediatrician that took time to educate me. And I was like, hey, I think this kid has ARFID. And she was like, oh, you can't say that. You're not the psychiatrist. And I was like, but this is what I'm seeing. We did not have anything like this. But I mean, that was like 10 years ago. So this is life. Eight years ago, 10 years ago. How old is Goose now? It was nine years ago. Because when we first moved here. But like you said, you know better and you do better. So ARFID, if you suspect ARFID, you have to get that kid over to a psychologist and get the actual diagnosis because it's a DSM-5 manual diagnosis and it's outside of our scope of practice to give. So we can't diagnose it. One of the most common things that I see occur in the world of home health is the car phone call. When you call somebody on Bluetooth, this drives me crazy. When you call somebody on Bluetooth and you're having a conversation, people outside of your vehicle can hear you. And if you are having a conversation in a very loud setting with a patient's doctor's office, you know, when you call the doctor's office, they say, all right, what's patient's name, which patient's date of birth, there's two point of identifications, or you can carry the conversation over. If somebody is walking by, they can hear that. And I'm a loud talker. I am well aware that I am a loud talker. I have to make sure that when my office door is closed, we even have noisemakers on the outside of our doors to try to shield and protect the content of our conversations. But I mean, if you're in home health, your office is your car. And I get that. But for instances like that, you know, good old fashioned earbuds or the new fancy cool. What is it? AirPods, bear calls them earbuds. So I don't remember what they're actually called. Yes. But okay. So what do you see? Driving. So I usually talk while I'm driving. So on the highway, no one can really hear you. Fair. Fair. Yes. Accurate. (laughs) But also that's not safe. (laughs) I'm just as guilty, but well, I mean, I'm normally talking to you at 730 in the morning. (laughs) So Cola, Cola is needing attention today, dear friend. (laughs) Normally it's dog. Oh, you can't walk in somewhere. They just drop. I'm trying to think of some other HIPAA, making sure that you're getting your families to sign the release information form. And there's ways to go about that. Like Michelle and I know, because I took from her form to create mine, have a form that basically says like allows me to communicate with members of the team involving continuity of care. So you don't have to have like every single individual, like if there's a new member of the team that comes on, like they're signing and saying that like in order to do our job, we can communicate with those team members. So that's really important. It allows me when like I'm working on feeding and there's this new school speech therapist, like I can speak with them because they signed off on all of those forms. Well, oftentimes like they'll have their own form that they want you to sign, which is fine. That's important for them to do that as well. Social media. Yeah. Making sure that if you post pictures that you have parent consent to post and we got to talk about the tongue tie, dude, we cannot diagnose a tongue tie in isolation outside of use of function from a photo. So yes, I understand that social media has the components where they'll say, you know, somebody posts a picture in a Facebook form. And honestly, I just quit getting on them because it just made me like murder mad level angry, which is not a good thing because then we go on like this massive cleaning spree in the house and it stresses the tiny humans out that live here. But when you go to seek the counsel of others, posting a picture on social media saying, is this a tongue tie? It's not appropriate because it's completely out of context. If you're going to diagnose that, is it impacting a latch? Is it impacting functional intake? Is it actually impacting speech sound production? Does the child have obstructive sleep apnea? What other underlying ear digestive tract issues could actually be occurring? We don't know. Mm -hmm. 
So if you're going to seek that guidance, may I give recommendation to host a non-picture but case scenario, HIPAA compliant, on SIG 13 and seek the guidance of very avid researchers. I mean, Joan Arbison is on there. Dr. Rocky Garcia is on there. And they have the experience that you need. You have to think about when someone is asking you why you're doing something, if you tell them because you saw it from a random person that posted on Facebook or from a random Instagram video, you got to do your own research and know where that's coming from. And yes, I understand that there are three parts to our evidence-based triangle. And if you are a part of the feeding therapy world, as I'm sure that all of you are, because you're here today, you have seen a lot of debates that are going on about like making sure you're taking from all parts of that triangle. And I totally understand that research is always takes years and years to come. But if there's research to show that something doesn't work, I'm going to also look at that research as well. It doesn't take years and years to come. The research is there, but we have to take ownership over the fact that when do we actually have time to do a deep dive into the research? Right. I mean, really truthfully, like if I get snippets of moments of time where I'm like, hey, I can play on Pinterest and pick out new bulbs for the garden to plant next month. Also, it's planning season for the bulbs next month. I'm very excited. (laughs) Or I can spend 15 minutes before bed reading a research article. And you know what? Lately, I've needed to binge bulbs, not read all of the research that I should probably stay up late at night and read. So I get it, but that's on us. So the research is there. So the 20 to 30 year timeline to go from research to practice, if we binged bulbs less and embraced reading a research article a week, we could expedite that 20 to 30 years. Right. And it's not necessarily, it takes to get from research to published research. It takes to get from published research to actually utilizing it. So there's a good point there. When people say like, they're just waiting for the research to come out for it. Like, I don't know what to tell you there. And I got this question. I was talking to students yesterday. They were asking about like, do you worry about like, you know, what you're doing with patients or how you're treating them or causing harm? Like, do you worry about causing Mm -hmm. harm? Well. Do no harm. Do no harm is part of our ethics. And as Michelle and I've talked about in previous episodes, you have your own scope of practice. So you have to make sure that you are comfortable in treating patients that is within your scope of practice. And with counselors, if they're working with a patient or a client and the patient or client says like, I don't feel like this is a right fit. Like it is in with in their ethics to find another therapist or clinician that make the referral. Yes. So if you get a referral for a patient and you really don't feel comfortable treating that patient, you, you need to refer out. I know it's really hard. I live in an area where there's not enough feeding therapists to be seeing the kid. I mean, most of us, I think live in areas like that because there's just not enough of us out there. But if you could cause harm as we know in feeding, like that's going to be worse because Mm -hmm. negative experiences compound on each other and can cause trauma. So I think it's important to think ethically from that aspect too, of am I qualified to treat this patient? If I'm not, what do I do about it? Can I seek mentorship with someone that can, and will that make me feel comfortable enough? That's okay. If you feel confident enough, If I can't, can I find someone that can? There's different pathways to get there, but it's important to think about that, especially because those are real life scenarios that happen because there's not enough people that feel qualified to treat some of these kiddos. There are resources. If you were to get your patient into notube.org, notube.com, the Feeding Tube Dependency Clinic, they have their own SLP on staff, but yet they liaison with the community-based clinician. I mean, I am the community-based clinician when I send my patients that are medically complex down to MUSC for the GI clinic or the feeding clinic, or they'll refer out to me here. Or like, I know they refer out to you up in Greenville, but like when those referrals come through, they're the subject matter expert in this child's unique 
engrossed craniofacial anomaly. I'm not. So I rely on their expertise to guide and shape, but I mean, I'm as good as it's going to get in my immediate area where I'm currently working. It's a desert, but I still know that I could God almighty. I'm not as good as the girls at MUSC. So I need them to fill my proverbial cups that I can offer best services. Okay. So here's a HIPAA theme that has come up your email for those communications. Is your email server HIPAA compliant? Mm -hmm. Is it safe so that when like the girls at MUSC are faxing me documents, they'll fax me and then they'll shoot me an email and say, hey, I sent you a new referral via fax. But when they're communicating with me via email, there's no patient identifiers, no chart numbers, no date of birth. It's just a, please let me know if you've got them. When can we schedule a time to talk, right? Yeah. Like a lot of hospitals have a special setup server. So you have to like sign in. Mm -hmm. I know that our company makes sure that our emails are HIPAA compliant, but even then I get nervous and I'll like use initials just to like be extra careful, then call later. And like, and usually they know who I'm talking about because I've communicated with them multiple times. You will get a bunch of doctors that send you stuff that's not HIPAA compliant. I mean, they'll put everything in there. So like, just because the doctor doesn't, doesn't mean that you should do it. Yes. Yes. Also, voicemail messages. I am... Um, oh, I don't put... So I'm really careful about that. <laughs> I don't put yes. names. I'll be like, I'll call I'll call an OT or someone. I'm like, hey, I'm calling you about a little one that we share. Yep. And I might say like a detail that only they... Like um, I talked to caregiver about... That I was going to reach out to you about sensory. Like, and they might, you know, but I'm not going to leave a whole voicemail of like, I'm calling about this patient. Here's what's going on. Because like, A... Even if they have their name on there, there's no guarantee. Is it necessarily their work phone? And also, like, when I work with EIs, like, no offense, but like, one day it's this EI, and then the next month it's a different EI that has this phone. So I don't really know. Yep. I'll joke and say, hey, I'm calling about our favorite redhead or like something of, of that nature. Mm-hmm. That away. Yeah, I don't know that. Even when I call, I would used to get nervous even at doctor's offices, but I know you're supposed to leave their name and date of birth. <laughs> But like for a while, I was still nervous. I love you. That's great. But yes, but I mean, that's, those are, those are real life concerns. Now we had one where we moved across the street, our university clinic. And when we moved across the street, like luckily our fax number stayed the same, but we had the doctor's office called. They knew that we had moved and the medical assistant said, I just wanted, before I faxed over this referral in the documents, I wanted to make sure that your fax number hadn't changed, that it wouldn't just go any which way. And I thought that is above and beyond quality continuity of care. She called in advance to verify that the fax number was accurate. It was a tool that I used when I had my private practice. I didn't have an actual physical fax machine because, you know, I contracted with a lovely woman. Thank you, Miss Jennifer, for doing all of my referral coordination. So there was a HIPAA compliant virtual fax. I don't really understand. Like it was a fax number, but it was attached to a secure HIPAA compliant email. And Lord, I paid like 20 bucks a month for this service, 15 bucks a month. But a fax would come in from the doctor's office and it would go to that. It would like transfer to like a secure email and we would get an email saying a fax has been delivered and they'd have to log in. So yes, it was a total pain in the katukas. But at the same time, I had peace of mind that we were eliminating potential concerns. Somehow tonight's talk has turned into like pro start your own private practice. I don't know why. Maybe somebody out there needs to hear this. You can do this, but you're yeah. just find a company that supports you like awesome yes yes you don't have to start your own private practice you, there's companies out there that support you I work in one hey, I was gonna say AIDL's hiring <laughs> yes Greenville does have a very pretty waterfall it's not that big but like it's cute <laughs> well and it's just like it's it's exciting because like we said I know we got into a bunch of HIPAA stuff but ethically this code is is also the start of people understanding because I'm learning a lot in what I'm doing right now, how much verbiage and how things are written and what terminology is used 
impacts so much how one word can change so many things from like a legislation standpoint or an insurance standpoint. And so to have an actual disorder diagnosis, I think even just helps with people understanding it and people continuing to grow supports for it and parents feeling justified in what experiences they've had. And it's also really cool to be able to finally like diagnose that because for most of our kids, it's not just dysphagia. And so it's been a a long time coming then feeding matters has worked on this for a really long time but it's important to know how to use this tool because they've given it to us and we have to make sure that like michelle said physicians understand it and and specialty g-i-n-t that they're yes so i encourage you to if they allow you depending on what restrictions are to go and meet with physicians and specialties that you work with and have the conversation about this code and have the conversation about the different aspects of it. Because also if, because there's so many different domains, a pediatrician notices any of those and they refer to you like that allows you to get these kids support much earlier instead of them down the road, getting an ARFID diagnosis when it wasn't really ARFID or instead of them having worse psychosocial outcomes because of an underlying medical etiology that wasn't caught because Mm -hmm it was labeled as as something else. And yes, there's a lot of changes. There's a lot of growth. And I know in other communities, like in the autistic community, there's a lot of new terminology that's like coming out to support what we've been learning more and more about. And in a similar way, it's like when you know better, you do better. And it does involve a lot of education. But what I've learned is that if you ask questions and you're honest and authentic about it, people are just going to be happy that you're asking questions and you're trying and you're growing. And also, as we've talked about in every single episode, that feeding is not easy and it's not for the faint of heart. And if you're going to try and come up, find a quick, like we said, there's four domains of a pediatric feeding disorder. And I'm just going to say it because I'm getting tired of it. If you're going to assume that it's all impacted by a tiny portion of a feeding skill in the anatomy of your mouth, then like our talk means nothing. Individuals may make a reasonable statement of prognosis, but they shall not guarantee directly or by implication the results of any treatment or a procedure. And that is rule of ethics letter L under principle of ethics one. And that's where my brain always goes back to when I hear that. But yes, mm-hmm. 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 just putting that out there. Y'all, we have come this far and we have the codes and hopefully we know how to ethically code the codes, how to reach out and educate our partners. But that's just it. We just started. We're literally four weeks and a day into this. We have so much more work to do, be done. So if you're listening, volunteer. If it's not through, again, please consider volunteering through Feeding Matters. But if it's not there, just simply print material out that's readily available from their website and send it in with your eval. Just giving the awareness to the physicians or to the referral source that in and of itself can be huge. When you have a child that's transitioning from IFSP to IEP, from early intervention system to the LEA, when they are gathering those documents together, please print out the descriptor and staple it with your eval and your plan of care. Another great potential is when, you know, say a new OT gets pulled in or a new specialist. It doesn't just have to be a physician. That's another point of contact where you can attach this information for improved awareness of hashtag call it PFD. That's what you say, right? You say hashtag first before you say the call it PFD. I don't, I don't know, but like, that's the thing that you put on social media. I don't, yeah, I don't think you have to say that, but. Okay. That's okay. Good God. Annalise is going to be like Michelle for real, <laughs> but, but adding that in and This is the start. Also, I have one last thought. Dysphagia Research Society. If you want to take one heck of a deep dive into where the research is 
and what it's telling us is current evidence-based practice, then consider going to the Dysphagia Research Society annual convention because they're the folks that are actually currently driving what we know will have the most positive impact. And you want to shave light years off those 20 to 30 year transition time, then there it is. You can actually speak with the authors of the articles. You can hear them talk about, okay, but this is what it looks like clinically. And so just putting that thought out there. Well, folks, if you're heading to ASHA, then on Friday the 19th, come join Dr. Reva Barwelli and myself at 11 a.m. We're doing a talk on transitional foods. Dr. Reva is the scientist behind Savories, the only true transitional food, according to the IDSI um, research, and possibly just one of the kindest, most radiant humans ever. So come join us there and then um, come check out Aaron and I and say hi over at the Speech Therapy PD booth. Well, everybody out there, have a good evening. And then uh, if, again, don't forget, you can catch us on First Bite Podcasts on Instagram, First Bite Podcasts on Facebook land. We always appreciate your kind words and messages. So have a good night and be safe. Bye, Bye. everyone. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind and feed those babies. Bye.